Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com slash easter24. It all sort of seems to start with us. And so it seems like such a strange place to start when actually to follow Jesus means you really have to start with Jesus and not our idea of Jesus or looking back 2000 years by reading the scripture and then creating a Jesus in the image that we can handle but to actually take account of the fact that the one that you and I are talking about today is listening to us with ears wow, and smiling yeah. at us with a mouth because he's still incarnate and embodied and busy and is really happy to invite us to be part of things, but he doesn't need us to yeah. be the Lord or to do what he's doing. So I think it's just, it gets flipped upside down and very often it, it to come down to the core reason as I think, Oliver, it comes to, to um, how we became Christians, right? It's sort of how we were introduced to the faith often shapes the story of how we're supposed to live out that faith. Welcome to the Transforming Discipleship Podcast brought to you by smallgroups.com, a ministry of Christianity Today. This podcast is designed to help church leaders think about what it looks like to make disciples of Jesus Christ. We hope that you're enjoying it and that you will send us your thoughts and ideas and feedback by emailing discipleship at smallgroups.com. We really do uh, care about your thoughts and some of the things you would like to learn about. So if you have any ideas, please email and we would love to connect with that. My name is Oliver Hersey. I'm the host and I'm joined right now by the producer, Kelsey Baus. How are you doing, Kelsey? Doing really well. Yeah, thanks, Oliver. I'm really excited about this discussion with Dr. Nordling. Yeah, Dr. Cherith Fee Nordling. We had an awesome discussion with her, and it's a longer one. So if you're tuning in, one of the things you probably want to get ready for is this is a longer episode, but not to be missed any part of it. We feel like the whole thing from beginning to end was dynamite. And, and I know the, the last segment... Kelsey is meaningful to you in a lot of ways. So I just want to, I'm curious, we talk about this Andre Rublev icon and it's a beautiful icon. And as Dr. Nordling's describing it, I'm, I'm just curious, what were you thinking about when um, she was walking us through that? Yeah, I mean, I'm actually still looking at the icon now. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity and participation in the divine life. You know, I liked what she said about how, you know, Jesus is still incarnate and it's not like that went away, you mm, know, after yeah. he ascended into heaven. Yeah, it's really beautiful and gives me a lot to think about. The way Cherith described it, I mean, I, I there was one point in the episode I started, I was tearing up a little bit because her description of it's so robust. And then as she's describing the whole feel of it, I mean, I'm just sitting there like, yes. This is really a great picture of what discipleship can be. 
Well, I think I think Cherith does a masterful job. She's a theologian. She's a scholar. She is so easy to talk to, and I really hope that everyone gets a chance to listen to the full episode, enjoy it, think about it. Send us your thoughts and reflections via email at discipleship at smallgroups.com. We would love to field a conversation with you about it. So hope you'll enjoy, and God bless you, my friends. Take care. We're going to talk with Cherith this day about how we can recover the lost art of discipleship. Dr. Cherith Fee Nordling is a professor of theology. She's taught at Wheaton College and Northern Seminary and currently is teaching a course at Regent College. She is a writer and speaker driven by a desire to help others get to know God better and what it means for us also to be somebody that lives in and leans into becoming God's image bearer in this world. Cherith, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. How are you doing today? You're so welcome. And what a privilege. I am doing well. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, I have to confess, it was Rob Toll, who's become a mutual friend of ours, that had suggested you have to, you have to get to know Cherith. And I'm glad he did because we got to know you a little bit and I've really appreciated your work as I've gotten to listen to it a little bit and read a little bit of it. And I've appreciated just your personality and getting to know you. And I'm very excited that you are taking the time today to join us. We're going to talk today about discipleship, the word, right? The big, dirty D word, <laughs> discipleship. And I, I want to, <laughs> you like that? We could call this episode the dirty D word. The big, dirty D. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we want to talk about it and we want to reclaim it. We want to reclaim the dirty D word. So, you know, I, I serve, I mean, you know this already about me, but I serve as, in a church as a pastor of discipleship. That was my role. And I've discovered along the way that the very word discipleship is so interesting in our world. I think there's all sorts of Christians with all sorts of understandings about this word. And so I guess I want to start this conversation with you this morning about what are some of these perspectives around the word and what are the problematic ways we're using this word discipleship today based on your own perspective, your own experience and research in the field? Well, yeah, it kind of grieves me that this word has been really heavy and weighty in my own life, let alone the lives of the people I know who've been trying to walk closely with or to follow Jesus or to be the church in the world. And so I guess I just want to start by saying what a gift to get to have this be part of our identity and and hence why I'm so glad that you're doing the work that you're doing in terms of talking about what does it mean for this to become transformed? Because I think our temptation these days is to go, if that's not working, let's replace it with something else or make the language more sexy or do something, something. And so if we're going to recover the D word, um, what a great place to start. I think that if I could just identify a couple of the ways that has felt weighty and hard and makes the word just burdensome, is that very often it's our best attempt or maybe our at least most familiar attempt to somehow live a moral life and to name that moral life as the life of following Jesus. Oftentimes it's really just kind of being nice for Jesus because we've gotten saved and then we're in this like limbo space and not really sure what the Christian life is supposed to truly be. And so we get caught in this 
this burden of having to act for Jesus in the world, to take the baton from him and to somehow be him or be his body in a way that sees him as disembodied apart from us and as not active apart from us. And so then our agency is the whole deal, right? Like we have to do this thing on behalf of God, for heaven's sake, for the world. And then the flip side of feeling the pressure to be those kind of people for God is that our own followership or our own sense of discipleship gets really bound up with us trying to also perform for God, right? So it's not just performing for the world on God's behalf, but it's it's somehow measuring up to whatever it means to follow Jesus. And so then we have to figure out, well, who is this Jesus? And what's my best projection of Jesus? And then what's that Jesus that I'm going to imitate? And over and over, if you've already not picked it up from everything I've just said, it all sort of seems to start with us. And so it seems like such a strange place to start when actually to follow Jesus means you really have to start with Jesus and not our idea of Jesus or looking back 2000 years by reading the scripture and then creating a Jesus in the image that we can handle, but to actually take account of the fact that the one that you and I are talking about today is listening to us with ears wow, and smiling yeah. at us with a mouth because he's still incarnate and embodied and busy and is really happy to invite us to be part of things, but he doesn't need us to yeah. be the Lord or to do what he's doing. So I think it's just, it gets flipped upside down and very often it, it to come down to the core reason. As I think, Oliver, it comes to, to um, how we became Christians, right? It's sort of how we were introduced to the faith often shapes the story of how we're supposed to live out that faith. So that's so good. Wow. I mean, it's like we going on right right now. I got to catch my breath here just for a minute. I need another sip of coffee. I think that's striking. I, I mean, I, I the way you have said it is so articulate. We can often call something discipleship because we are trying to follow an example. And that's it. Period. Full stop. We are following this example that is simply rooted in morality, doing the right thing and the good thing. And we end up calling that discipleship and we walk around our whole life thinking that's what it is. And I think what you're saying is it's not. (laughs) It is so (laughs) much more. I think you said the words Jesus is still embodied and he's he desires to instill his presence in us and to live from a place that involves that is much different than living out of a moral background. I think we all need to just sit on that for a minute because you've articulated it so well. You talk about Christological heresies that we end up buying into, and I think that might be related a little bit to this. At least it can impact us and our faith. And so I'm wondering if you can tease those out a little bit for us. What are some of these Christological heresies that you have noticed and how are they detrimental to our understanding of discipleship? If I could be so bold, bold. I would would want to go back. (laughs) Okay, let's just do it. I think sometimes we actually end up with a heretical telling of the gospel story 
in terms of how we even become Christians and that that sort of sets the stage for the Jesus character that gets plopped into that story. And just to remind us all as an aside, when we use the word heresy, it's really, really good for us to do that. And it's really important that we keep that as part of our prayer life and our conversation in the church and our examination and community, because heresies are always things that are happening in the church. They don't happen outside the church. Outside the church, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Exactly. <laughs> they can reject the faith or whatever. But yeah. But the heresies of the church are the church's attempts over 2,000 years of life together to very often try to simplify or to reduce the mystery of the fact that this is God in our midst and that we are trying to make sense of this wonder of God being with us and for us and having uniquely um, revealed himself to us and met us in Christ Jesus. But we, we then want to kind of figure out how to make him palatable or how to make him reasonable in our thinking as creature children. And then I think oftentimes too, when we've come up through Sunday school or other ways that we've been taught evangelism, and then oftentimes discipleship and evangelism get all commingled together in funny ways. We also want a simple gospel to give away. And instead of making that gospel Jesus, which is really pretty much all the New Testament (laughs) proclaimed, right? As their life of God together is he's our guy. He is the Lord over all things in the midst of our mess and our suffering. Who has claimed allegiance over our lives? How are we becoming like him? We we end up starting with um, a story that's sort of like God's way out there, singular, just God, right? So then God gets bored or lonely and makes a world and boom, then we have creation. And suddenly by chapter three of this very long book of the Bible, the whole thing goes to hell in a handbasket, right? Like just sin, fall, boom. Now we just have the rest of the Old Testament watching God kind of dip in through these big acts or making covenants with these unique characters to keep trying to say, I'm here. Can y'all pay attention to me? I love you, but you really can't stay in the storyline very long. And, and then it just looks like, boom, everything blows up. And then the next, you know, sort of divine intervention and boom. And then the next one and the next one, next one, until finally in exile, there's this promise um, that God himself will somehow intervene in a unique way that's both faithful to these other ways and unique. And then we get Jesus, right? But instead of actually getting Jesus, if I could like draw this on a whiteboard, this becomes these kind of big steps in. And then we see this big kind of chasm, like the Roman road. And we're kind of taught that there's this inseparable chasm between us and God, despite the fact that the whole of Israel scripture keeps showing us the fact that God hasn't gone anywhere and has held us um, in his love and care and trying to draw us to what it means to really be truly human image bearing children um, with him and after his own heart. But we get this story that he's separated from us because of our sin. And then Jesus function is to come down, get a body So he can run around and say a lot of things, do a lot of miracles to prove that we ought to listen to the things he said, die on the cross, resurrect. And oftentimes I think we think he resurrects himself as if he's like, sorry, I got to 
die. I'll be back in three days. I'll, I'll be back. I just wow. got to raise myself. Yeah. And then he at Easter, we're like, well, good. I guess Easter is the woohoo, like the cross took or something. And then yeah. he's gone. Right. And then if we have any kind of Trinitarian theology, we have now the father who is now God in the name of fatherhood of the son. And in, we might have the Holy Spirit, but the spirit in some of our contexts is the spirit who is helping people write the Bible mm. or and then disappearing. Or it's the spirit who is somehow empowering us to be good or to be nice or then just gone. Right. And so then our little weird trinity is the father, son and holy book. And then we start taking the book to try to look back and read the book as a manual for figuring out how to keep the divine human relationship going. But Jesus is gone. And, and sort of, if I pick up the picture I remember from being in, I think six or seven in Sunday school was the flannel graph. And I know for most of you, you wouldn't have no idea what flannel oh, graph is. I know is, what but, the flannel graph is. The little, <laughs> I know I had it. Come on. I'm young, but I get okay, it. So, I get it. Yeah. So thank God. Like I'm not that old, Oliver. So good. But flannel graph. <laughs> they were all Jesus white was, like, people. They were all there. white people. They, they were all hair. white. Maybe some brown and hair every once in a while. <laughs> and if she colored them, she certainly never colored the skin brown. But no, right. But he was stuck on this flannel graph on a rock. And then there are these angels and the few disciples. And then he just kind of floats up and and just disappears behind the flannel graph. And then he's gone. Right. So now it's like, oh, Jesus is back to being spirit hmm. with the father. And so I have no Jesus anymore. I just have Jesus then. So we talk about Jesus when he was human, when he was alive. I think what people mean is when he was on the earth. But very often it means when he had a body. And so most of my classes, my students will just like have their minds blown when they just have to start considering the fact that Jesus is still probably five foot four um, or something like that, yeah. certainly yeah. shorter than me, Small, still yeah. Palestinian right. in his Jewishness, even in his exalted and glorified humanity. It's still human. Like he still looks like his mom yeah. and her family and the DNA. So the idea that there's that this person is still this person who we follow, that's not very often in our storyline. And it would require that we actually knew the spirit, that we were born of the Holy Spirit and being able to, by the spirit, through the life and prayer and voice and person of the spirit who with the father and the son is God, Lord, equally worshiped and magnified, says the creed, that this one who is God is the one who unites us to the still human Jesus, who is still doing the delightful, pleasing work of his father. So when we don't have that Trinitarian context, all of a sudden, it's our job to figure out how to fill in the gaps. And then we have to find a heretical Jesus to make sense of when we look back at the scripture. As, you, as you're talking and you're explaining it this way, my mind immediately goes to, well, what do we default to in churches and in religious communities? In addition to our corporate worship gathering, which is a sacred moment where we are meant to have a collision with the Trinity and allow the Trinity to continue to impact our lives and to worship God, the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and, and Jesus, we have this opportunity to have this powerful moment. You know, what else do we do for discipleship purposes? Well, we default to Bible study. And I am a Bible teacher. I'm a professor of Bible. I love the Bible, and I love teaching it, but I think how many times do we 
fail to have opportunities in our communities that set us up for a more dynamic, enriching discipleship mm-hmm. experience that creates space for a holy encounter with the Lord, sitting in things like Amen. silence and solitude or pure worship reflection or taking time to fast and gather for corporate prayer. And I know there's a lot of church communities that do this, but more often than not, our organized corporate programs tend to gravitate toward take this class, take this class, take this Bible study. Not often a class where you show up and the leader says, okay, now just be quiet for 60 minutes because no one really wants (laughs) to go to that class, but that's the class that could change your life. Exactly. As long as in that space, we know who we're meeting. Right. I think we're afraid in those spaces because we so often haven't had that encounter in a way that is grounded in the person of Jesus. And I mean that by by saying, who is this person? Right. Like who how do I meet the father who he loves? How do I meet the father who adores him? Right. When Jesus says, look, my father and your father is how he meets Mary right in the garden that that. This one who has been my father, who I'm not doing a thing, right? That isn't what he's up to. We're in this together. I am participating in your life, but also as the participation in the divine life. This is what it looks like for God to be in the world. And this is the place where God designed from the beginning that the world would look to see what God looks like in the world. It's in human beings. So here I am with you as one of you precisely where the world should see us. So then Jesus coming stops being this strange invasion or intervention. It's actually meeting in this person, come to be one of us forever, to take what is ours to give us what is his, to say Mm -hmm. this moment, we finally meet in him true humanity and true God. So to sit in that hour space is to think, oh, and how does he do what he's doing? Well, now we get to the heresy part of not recognizing that this one is also constantly moving and living and responding to in in alignment and cooperation and love with God, the spirit, who has been Emmanuel, God with us upon the earth since Genesis 1. And so... (laughs) We realize with Jesus, we actually get introduced to the triune God and the joy that is held by a life of love in that that love together. And so I I think you're right. We don't want to go to those spaces because we don't know who will meet us in that space, except maybe our worst self or all of our fears that I can't hear God. I don't know God because it's been, as you said, brought down to Bible study. It's become about sort of using our minds um, to work out our thinking about God instead of knowing God. Yeah. Right. We're here right. to extract as much information and knowledge and find the right keys. And it's not giving us permission or direction of how to listen and become good listeners. Yeah. Or to be or to know ourselves as loved. Right. It's yeah. like just yeah. to just to have you read my CV there for like a little mini second. It's like, I'm so glad I had this conversation with Oliver last week because I've I've stood up in many a meetings where somebody I've never met has read my little three by five card of yeah. who I am. And I think it sounds very different to have someone who's never met you yeah. talk about you. Right. But it's different to have someone who knows you share you with someone. Right. So I think that's part of our challenge there. So 
I have three brothers and we're all really close in age. And when my brothers and I used to talk about Jesus, I think we would come from Sunday school or youth group. And we probably always had a good two or three common heresies always running in the background. And it's probably just a good exercise every once in a while to go, okay, where am I, where am I defaulting to that kind of crazy think again? But it's so normal because it's the Jesus that we sort of met in our very young Christian imaginations as kids. And then it's hard to rethink that, right? Unless we're really invited to. The storyline, as I was sort of giving it to you, I think lays the groundwork for so much of the challenge around our evangelical Christian life together, which is that by and large, our life has become profoundly Gnostic and not really Trinitarian and not really embodied. So what do I mean by that? Gnosticism, as it kind of came up through the century, at the end of the century of Jesus' life and into the next century and then beyond, was very, very committed to the idea that the real, real, real reality was spiritual, right? So the world in Gnosticism, anything in the created order was just the fallout of these big divine cosmic battles, right? And so the detritus or the trash that was left over became creation. And then our souls or sort of our sparks of light and being got trapped in these human bodies. And so the secret knowledge that we're all waiting for in Gnosticism is that secret code or that secret information that is the secret life insurance policy that gets us saved Mm. out of our bodies and into some spiritual reality. And I think, well, boy, that sounds familiar. (laughs) As you're you're saying this, I'm having like cringing thoughts. It's like, oh, wow. I can, I can relate to this. I know it because we're getting people saved, not to be truly human in life together with God. We're getting people saved for this disembodied place called heaven. An evacuation. Weirdly, this like embodied place. So we want to take people out of their bodies for the goodness of heaven, as if that's good, as if being human was not really good to God at the end of all things, because Mm. we messed it up. So he's blowing us up and turning us into something else, angelic or spiritual or something that takes away our humanity, which also completely negates Jesus. Yeah, who's wow. still human? Well, you're spot on. Why on earth would God have built into a plan this idea of like, you know what, the humanity I created, the image I created is so garbage. I'm just going to send my son and even that's garbage. I'm just going to have this evacuation plan. It is not that way at all. It's like, Jesus, could you please just put that skin on for this little short period of time Mm. till I can just take it off of everybody, right? But oddly, in some of our worlds, we still want people to keep their bodies on when they go to hell. (laughs) like we want some kind of eternal consciousness right like it's like wait 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 so anyway i think i think that that's like where evangelicalism and narcissism they're cousins in a way that's part of what i'm trying to write on is wow how did that happen and then how do we end up being christians in very disembodied ways that we think is about right thinking and then when it's not knowing how to be embodied and enacted then our morality feels even more weighty when it comes to discipleship because we don't know what 
true embodied life as Jesus followers looks like, right? Because Jesus doesn't have one anymore. We're not going to have them. So what are we doing, right? Are we just trying to be nice until such time as God blows everything up? So that Gnostic storyline does not take the Christian story seriously. It does not take our life seriously. It does not take Jesus' permanent humanity, which the incarnation is, was not temporary. It is God's permanent choice to unite human life to the divine life of God. This is really profound. I think that you're you're spot on here, and I think you, the way you're articulating it is very accessible. I think I mean, you're you're a top notch theologian, and I appreciate you, Chair, taking the time to really think about communicating this in a way. I, I feel like this is very accessible for people. This is great. Good because I think it's taken so long to unpack without in any way shaming or disregarding or dismissing the people we love who gave us the best of the faith as they know it or the life of Jesus that they've known. Right. But to say somehow we've passed on, I think in, especially in the 20th century in this kind of boom global evangelism century and to this one, the thinnest layer of our story. And as it got thinner, it actually got off. So much of what we're talking about today is a way of sort of reclaiming the heart of the gospel so that we actually know who we're disciples of and with in this moment, that we're really following him as he invites us and no more and no less. So if the other part of discipleship feels weighty, it's that we take on way too much because we see a needy world and then we just feel like we've got to solve it or do something, or then we get paralyzed because we actually don't trust that Jesus is doing it. Like he is the Lord of it, that he is in it all and cares about it all and is really asking us to attend to him and that we get up in the morning, not with the weight of the whole world on our shoulders, but we get up in the morning, listening to the joy of the triune God say, we're so glad you woke up. We welcome you into this day because there are places where you get to walk with us uniquely that nobody else will. And we just want you to come and be part of what is happening in this day, which is a participation in both suffering and the fellowship of glory, where it's the character of God and the power of God in so many different ways. And it's only doing what the Father asks us to do with Jesus by the Spirit and no more and no less, right? That's the cool part is there's so much that we could be doing with him that we aren't doing, but there's so much he's never asked us to do (laughs) that we're weighed down by. So I think that comes back again to what does it mean for us to not take Jesus seriously? So to to just think about this in the terms of the heresies, the, the first heresy that sort of rolls out of that bigger Gnostic picture was called docetism, still is, but we I'm going to just explain where these words come from because they are not important. The words themselves don't hold big meaning. You can you can interchange them with other ways of speaking about these things. But docetism came from a Greek word called dokane, which meant to seem or to appear. And Jesus just seemed to be human. He wasn't really human. He was sort of a, a hologram. Like he he looked like it and he could actually hold things and move and do things. But this sort of came out of that Gnostic idea that there is no way that the divine would ever taint itself with the creaturely Mm. because the creaturely is bad. Creation is bad. It's all going to be destroyed. 
And so if the divine needed to take on the appearance of a human being, which all the Greek mythology let us do, then that's what we're seeing here, that the true God would never really become one like us. So I think that very much then he's also truly this superpower Jesus, who's kind of the Superman, but who, when he needs to kind of dial stuff down, is like the Palestinian Clark Kent, right, from Nazareth, who, who's cruising around in this approachable way. But when you see him do this stuff, it's like, you know, his red cape is kind of showing for a minute there. And, and then it kind of all quiets down a bit. And, and then we look at that Jesus and go, how would I ever follow him? Like, who does that, right? Who could do that without just feeling like destroyed before you even took your first step? Yeah, so that Jesus is a killer, right? The, the Another Jesus that is very common throughout the centuries and centuries and centuries of the church, and every generation comes back around with this, y'all. So we're in good company and we all need to be like healed and converted out of this. But the other Jesus that we often meet is um, a Jesus that got sort of named after a guy named Apollinaris. And so we call it Apollinarian Jesus. Could be Cherith Jesus for all that, because I've done this many times, which oh, is that if in fact we give Jesus a real body, which the docetists didn't, but say the Apollinarians do, yeah, he doesn't have, he, he has a divine brain. So how does he always know what everybody's thinking? Because he's God. Right? How does he have power? Because he's got like access to his divine superpower again, because he's divine. Does he ever really wonder how this is going to come out? No, because he's divine. Okay. So suddenly, then the temptations of Jesus, the truly human challenge of obedience like, how do you put obedience next to Apollinarianism? If in fact he always is just going to make the right decision and always knows what the father's thinking and always like, it's like yeah. What what is obedience, right? If the scriptures are full of, but somebody finally pulled off this truly human life and go, well, clearly that was a no-brainer, <laughs> pun intended, <laughs> for the guy who has the divine brain. So you're going, well, I can't be like him because I am tempted in every way. And Hebrews tells me he was tempted in every way, but I don't think so if he's really got the divine right. download. Right. Right. Yeah. So then you, you move over to these others who go, well, I don't know what to do. That still feels like like separation of these two things. So so we're just going to be these kind of monophysitists and that bunch are just like, we're just blending the whole thing. Like Jesus is just a big alloy, right? He's, a, he's this weird mix of divine and human and none of us can really figure it out. But then again, Oliver, you and I couldn't possibly be like Jesus any more than we think he's like us because... I'm not that. How right. do I follow that? Right. Right. Or, or Nestorians who thought, well, I really want to honor the distinction. If those monophysitists are blending it all together, I want to hold it different. But then you end up with two persons. You end up with this divine son who gets crazy fluid to the Nazareth Jesus. And then you've got like two persons cruising around. So when Jesus is tired, it's his human person. And if he's doing divine stuff, it's because he's the son of God. And all of these and more. There are, there are many more versions of how we kind of reconstruct him. Yeah. All of them fail to take seriously. Yeah. The fact that he has become forever like us in every single way. That's something. With one exception, right? The scripture says there's just one exception. 
Yeah. And that exception can only be said after the fact. Because it says without sin. And it means that he had the chance and the choice a million times a day to sin, Mm. to walk outside of his storyline the same way we've walked outside of ours, to to chuck his true humanity in favor of his divinity, to, to disregard what the father is asking him to do that is so hard to do, to submit to his human longings right he's whether they're sexual longings whether they're longings regarding power all of it is his experience along with mine and if we don't believe that he has come among us to be the firstborn of a new creation but only is given that privilege if in fact he can walk our life with us and is only able to do so with the same power that we would, which would mean that he has relinquished access, not to his divine sonship, but to the power that is yeah. rightfully his as yeah. the son. And say, well, if Oliver and Cherith can only do this by the power of God present to them through the person of the Holy Spirit, mm. then that is how I too will live a human life because that is what the human life is, yeah. is human image bearers empowered breathed on, filled with, born of the spirit. So we watch him actually as somebody who's asking questions all day, listening to the father, checking in, did I really hear you, Holy Spirit? We're we're doing what? (laughs) Right? Like, I love reading the gospels now and going, okay, Jesus, these are all the questions I would have asked if I was you or if I was with you. And I want to know that you asked them. I want to know that this was as hard for you as it was for me. And when I read Gethsemane, I'm like, this was hard for him all the way through, all the way through. and a joy, right? Set before him to go. Yeah. But if I do this, then Oliver and Cherith and all my other brothers and sisters get their lives back, yeah. get their human lives back forever in resurrection. So I'm going to do it if mm. it kills me. And it did. I <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm going to try my best as well. And I know our producer Kelsey's in, in the booth listening right now, you know, one of the things you've mentioned it so many times now this this idea of the father the son and the holy spirit mm. this threefold three persons in one deal and you have articulated along the way how each is alive and present and well and powerfully doing things in our life and you shared with us last time we talked to your favorite one of your favorite icons that you have hanging in your office at home and it is a, a beautiful painting by the russian i think it's russian painter andrei rublev uh, of the mm-hmm. trinity and as you were talking about it last time we were chatting um, i just thought oh this this could perhaps be what discipleship needs to be about or, or dare we say it should be about. And, and uh, it's actually changed even some of the ways I've thought about since our last conversation, which wasn't very long ago, I've had different moments over the weekend where I was thinking about things differently as I sat at an empty table by myself. Mm-hmm. So I'd love for you to just share a little bit about this painting, maybe describe it since we can't see it, describe it for yeah. us and then share with us a little bit of its meaning for you. Yeah, very happy to do that. And what a great way to kind of bring all this together. And by the way, for anyone, like you can just do a quick Google search and you can see a Rublev icon image um, very quickly available to you. So Andrei Rublev painted this icon in a little church in Russia some six 
to 700 years ago for churches where people didn't read, right? And for most of human history, your average person couldn't read. And even if they could, they didn't have access to um, texts. And so this is well before the printing press, and this is in a rural, poor part of Russia. So part of what you do to come into a sacred space, in the case of this little church, is to see images that remind you of the story in which God holds you. And I think that's just one really important to say that right there, right? Because our spaces do speak and God knows that. And he loves the fact that he's made us in ways that are responsive to all these different sensorial ways of remembering who we are and what story we're really in. And so, so he really makes folks write, like create a tabernacle, create a temple, yes. oh. like your nose and your Speaking eyes. Like, language. You to, yes. Yeah, right. You need to see your story because the world as you walk through our world all day, every day is full of props to tell you a different storyline or about a thousand different storylines. Yeah. And so to come into a space that reminds us who we are is really important. And, and so in this space, Rublev took the story of the three angels, the three visitors coming to see Abram in Genesis 18 to promise him yet again, remind him of God's promise that he would have a son. And Rublev takes the icon and lets these three visitors sit at this table. And he makes the visitors actually a way of seeing a tripersonal God, mm. that these three who come, come on behalf of God, who ultimately in Jesus reveals himself to be the three who are this one God. Wow. And so as he paints this picture, it looks like a, it, so first of all, icons are two-dimensional and they're two-dimensional on purpose. If you get them looking 3D and too much like a normal painting, then they stop being a faithful icon because an icon is only supposed to be a two-dimensional, very flat window that gives you an image of the reality that's behind that window. And so if you pass through the icon and kind of come out on the other side and go, oh, that's right. I'm really held in the love and life of a triune God. Mm. So it's a very flat image and it looks like it's kind of a squarish table. And you've got these three persons who are sitting on three sides of this four-sided table. All three of them are exactly the same size. Mm. They're exactly the same shape. Their face is exactly the same. They all wear exactly the same color of part of their clothing, which is this royal blue for their shared divinity. Mm. And they look on one another with this gaze that both sees each other. And in the center of this table is a cup with a Eucharistic cup from the blood of Jesus. So what Rublev wants to say first is when you see any one of these persons, you have seen all three of these persons together, that there is no difference in their character, in their love, that the love that invites you to that table is not something they have. They don't have love for you. They are love in their interpersonal relationship together. And they have made you and waited for you before the creation of the world. So beautiful. To be braced and held by their love for you. Yeah. So he says, okay, first we just need to see that these three are God together. And then he wants us to see the distinction of their personhood. And so 
the father who lives in unapproachable light, the figure of the father has this gorgeous kind of gold shimmering robing that's over top of his blue. And he is to the son's right side. And, and then the son is in the center, Jesus, and his primary robe, that part that isn't blue, is brown. And he wears the dust and the dirt and the brown of our human experience in his own being. So he gets to be both very royal blue and very um, hummus, like that, yeah. that stuff of the earth, brown, like us. And then the spirit Adam, who Adam. is on his left side, exactly, the Adam. Um, and the new Adam, right? He's taking the old and so making it new in himself. And then the spirit wears green on top of his um, blue because this is the Lord and giver of life, as the Nicene Creed yeah. says, that all things as he proceeds from the Father and the Son, it is the spirit who brings forth the life of the world and inhabits us and inhabits all of the created order to unite us to the life of God. And then the most beautiful part of this icon is not that we just get to gaze on them, but that there is in this fourth space, this not empty space, there's actually a little little design on the bottom of that space. And just a lot of debate about what that design is, but we think Rublev put that in there as a little symbol of the whole known world mm -hmm. at the time as they took it out of the understanding of the revelation. Like, how do you take the the measurements that are given in the revelation to account for the world and that the whole world has been invited before they ever even came to be not just through the cross but in their very being and then at the cup that sits before them that gives them new life that this is our place of family meal so we wake up here we finish the day here we sit here when we're praying the son and the father are united to us by the spirit. The spirit is interceding for us. Jesus, our high priest is going, father, remember, remember when I was like praying the same stuff, just, you know, crying out to you in the middle of the night about the same stuff that Jareth is like, <laughs> how to take my prayer and offer it in perfect, perfect purity to the father. And then turn around having cleansed it to pour out the love of God. Whoa. To all of us who are seated there, like to go, this is the place of true, true fellowship. And mm. discipleship means that we have hung out, knowing ourselves beloved, knowing ourselves as chosen and adored and delighted in by God, including the fact that he would make us whole, right? To redeem us is not just to fix the sin problem. It's to give us our humanity back. Yes. So that we can actually be in company with him as we were intended to be and will be forever. And that union, boy, when I sit down to pray sometimes and I'm like finding myself beginning to try to work my way toward convincing God to care about what I'm praying about, <laughs> I go, boom, I am already in the heretical space where I'm not believing that Jesus is mediating this for me and interceding this for me that he gets me in every single way wow yeah that he's waiting for me to talk not waiting for me to convince him to care right he's like Cherith, what about your story do you think i don't get right like yeah. of course i get to do this for you and i love to do this for you and and then to think it's the spirit who's like Cherith, always always i am pulling you into this triune conversation always i want you to hear the voice of the father and the son not just telling you who you are and their love for you but 
inviting you into what they see yeah. and what they know and what they would speak in the world. And or even groaning. I think about the spirit. Just, yes, just exactly lamenting and them. aching. There's all these moments of the human experience that the spirit can intervene for us on. And I, ah, oh, how yeah. profound and beautiful. Yes. Keep yeah. going. Keep going. Yes. So, well, all that to say is if, if we could sort of reconsider discipleship yeah. as true followership and not just imitation, because this, actually the New Testament has a fair amount of language of imitation later. But that being like Christ is not like I need to think of what I think Christ would do and the Christ I've made up in my head and then copy that idea. It's to say, I need to know him so well yeah. and I need to be in conversation with him every day so that I'm actually able to see where he is and where he would call me into what he's up to and where I can see myself aligned or misaligned to that. And not in shame, but to just go, Cherith, you're tempted right now to do something else with that because it it just feels too hard for you and you want to step back or you want to fix it. Mm -hmm. But maybe I just want to be with them to yeah. let them know they're seen and loved, right? Like it's that listening to this real person yeah. who really is helping us be participants in bringing forward the shalom, which is the mm -hmm. big salvation of God, right? Yeah. In every conceivable way. Into a world, and that that followership means you really have to know him. You can't be having a follower manual to an idea. You have to really be following a person. I look at that icon. I pulled it up just now, and I'm looking at it, and, and maybe it's intentional. Maybe it's not. Maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's almost as if there's a spot there for me to enter into the presence of this. Every one of us should pull ourselves right up there to the I, table. There's like a spot at the table for you. And so there's a spot at the table for anyone listening right now. Maybe you've had a terrible week. Maybe you are struggling with your ministry. Maybe you're not sure you want to keep going on. We don't know the answers for you, but we do know that there is an answer at that table for you. And there is a, a powerful triune God that wants to help instruct and offer wisdom and guidance. And sometimes it just means pulling up to the table and sitting in the, the plan, as you said, to bring shalom into this world. That plan will take root in your own heart as well. And the God of shalom will breathe that shalom into you. By the Spirit's power will enable you to taste it and to know it and to to, to give it to others. So uh, what you have said, I, I was sitting this weekend, Cherith, after talking to you last week, and I found myself at a table. Literally, it was after everybody had left the breakfast table and I had cleaned it and I sat down having a cup of coffee. And I looked and there was an empty chair, an empty chair, and an empty chair. And I thought to myself, no, it's not. It's not empty, right? Because the journey is, and I just sat, here I am, Lord, and you will speak. And, uh, and Which I think that's such a beautiful image, Oliver, because I think it brings us to the more faithful word that is, if I could, if I could, if we had to get rid of the word discipleship, which I don't think we have to, I think we just have to no. reclaim it the way that Jesus gave it it's to us. It's not the dirty D word at all. It's not the dirty D. It is a delightful no. D. It's a delightful but D word, I absolutely. I think the D is actually better framed, not as imitation, but participation. Yes. Right? It's really... I have made you to come along with me. Yeah. I have not made you to try to copy me from a distance. You can't be. Or to try to look back. You you can't, but right. you could Speaking meaning participate yeah, right. with me, right? And so suddenly yeah. your picture of, I'm really at table. Uh, we're really in this together. Yeah. I'm really held in this relationship. Then we move and 
and we participate like like you just talked about as a family. You participated together in breakfast, and everybody yeah. runs and then does it. But, <laughs> but you're not imitating each other to figure out how to do breakfast. You're just yeah. living in a participatory way together. Yeah. And I think participation is really the more faithful and truthful um, word that we pick up when we hear the word in Christ all yeah. the way through the New Testament. Mm-hmm. The the way the church begins to reflect on their life held in this triune life is to say, my life really is hid with Christ in God. I get to participate with him in who he is and what he's doing. So we can really say, I was going to ask you this, but you kind of just answered it for us. Healthy discipleship that's moving in the right direction involves this participation, this participation with the beautiful, mysterious triune God that invites us to the table uh, in, in yeah. order to teach and to instruct and to, to, to journey with us in life, to invite us on a journey. And just to say, I love you, oh, right? Some days maybe all he says is, That's all you, need. you need to just sit and have a good cup of coffee all day. Right? Because <laughs> Don't tempt me, Jareth. I just love you. <laughs> I think yeah. for us little workaholics who tend to be like little worker bees for Jesus, Jesus yeah. like, actually, what I'd love to give you is a long day of participatory yeah. coffee. Yeah. So. <laughs> you, nothing you can do, Cherith, is going to prove yourself to me. And, you know, you don't have to do X, Y, and Z to get to this table. You just need to come. Oh, so you did that last night? It's okay. Come to the table. You've been struggling with this shame? It's okay. Come to the table. There is nothing that anyone has done that precludes them from sitting at this table, which is why the world's there, I think. It's a beautiful picture that Andre Rublev has captured. He understands that Jesus is here for the world. He's here for all, and and, uh, and that includes us. And probably if you were going to go to any other place besides Jesus, which we don't have to, but when (laughs) when we look at the New Testament reflecting on that, I think the Rublev icon for me becomes one of the most powerful moments also to just reflect on Paul's conclusion at the end of Romans 8, where he's just summing up really our Christian story, right? Which is that we've been born of the Spirit. We've been made children of the Father. We have now become co-heirs with our elder brother who happens to be the Lord of the universe. Like this is the stuff Paul's talking about, right? The whole cosmos is waiting to be joined. It's all a participation in the fellowship of glory and suffering. And then he says, just what you said. Yeah. Nothing can separate you nope. from the love of God that is Christ Jesus, not just in Christ Jesus, but right. the minute you can try to split out the the hypostatic union of this two <laughs> this two nature of one person, like it's like have at it. Like the minute you can try to do that, but it's like nothing <laughs> can separate you from this embodied incarnate love that is Jesus. He says not life or death or your own messed up choices or your own addictions or your own fears, not powers, not principalities, not the future, not like you name it. Anything that was last night, as you just yeah. described that analogy, whatever oh. is the last night of your life, that can't take away your seat. Yeah, right? Your seat. You were in fact sitting in that seat when all of that was happening. Yeah. And they were loving you through that oh, and in wow. that and are ready to clean that up. Right. So it's a beautiful picture. Well, Cherith, I feel like we could talk for much longer. And I think we're just going to have to have you back on the Transforming Disciples podcast. <laughs> so hopefully you're, you're up for that. But well, Thank you. It was such a joy. Maybe you just want to leave us with, I know you're probably working on some things. It sounds like you have a book in the works maybe, or is there something we can expect and look forward to getting our hands on that you're, you're developing right now? 
Yeah, thank you for asking. I am this year actually trying to work on two projects at the same time so that they can actually um, happen. It sounds like more work. <laughs> I, I thought it was one, but it get getting too convoluted. I finally realized actually if this is just two, it gives a simpler way of talking about it. So one of them is really to look at, looking even at my own story, like how was I a Christian Gnostic for an awful lot of my life? Mm. And the fact that actually you can't really be a Christian Gnostic, like those are incompatible. It's an oxymoron, right? Either one is true or the other is true, but somehow I managed to carry that storyline and I think a lot of us do. And so it's finding out what does it mean to be human and learning how to be human from, of all people, the son of God, right? So that's one. And then the second, which is very closely tied to that, but it's just spent a little bit more time is to really consider then how to take his ongoing humanity seriously. So really reflecting on the ascension as how is Jesus' ongoing life and meaningful? Why, why does it matter every single minute of every single day for our life, not just now, but our future human life as children of the resurrection? And so those two projects are kind of um, yeah getting me up in the morning. Well, we are excited uh, for the work you're doing. And I know you're teaching. You got a lot of work you're doing. Uh, we just really appreciate you and appreciate you taking the time to be with us. So thank you so much. You are so welcome and bless everybody who's in the discipleship journey. This episode of the Transforming Discipleship Podcast has been brought to you by smallgroups.com. It's a ministry of Christianity today. And we want to thank all of you ministry leaders who've tuned into this episode. If you've been finding this podcast helpful for your ministry, we ask that you'd share it with other colleagues and ministry partners, or even lay people that are, are not involved directly with ministry, but maybe one day they will. If you'd like full access to smallgroups.com, you can subscribe today. We have various plans to meet your budget. This is going to give you access to hundreds of Bible studies, and indeed, even some will be on the topics that we're talking about right now with the Trinity and theology and things like that, um, and discipleship for sure. And they'll be helping you train your leaders and things like that. We also have a new segment called Ask the Expert. If you'd like to hear more from Cherith Fee Nordling, you can find some of her teachings online and definitely keep your eyes open for the books that will be coming out soon. Cherith, appreciate you so much. Thank you again. And until next time, friends, God bless.